I'm Darren. And I'm Esther. And this is Second Sunday, a podcast about Black queer folk finding, keeping, and sometimes losing faith. This season's full of candid conversations. We're talking to theologians, artists, activists, and community members living at the intersections of faith, spirituality, and identity. The saints ain't ready for this. But we're still going to talk about it. Second Sunday. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Second Sunday is a Cube original podcast and is part of the PRX Big Questions Project. I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This is an idea travelogue. It lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. I began the conversation by asking Saru Jayaraman, president of One Fair Wage, to share some of what she's been hearing from restaurant workers and others in the service industry. So uh, first of all, I think it's super important for people to understand where workers were at in the service sector before mass layoffs occurred about a couple weeks ago. Um, You know, the restaurant industry is one of the largest and fastest growing segments of the economy with almost 14 million workers, but is also one of the absolute lowest paid. And that is because of a legacy of slavery, the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, which is still $2.13 an hour. The original tipped workers to receive such a wage were former slaves. Right after emancipation, the National Restaurant Association asked or demanded to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them anything, and have them live entirely on tips. And that idea became law as part of the New Deal in 1938. Everybody got the minimum wage except farm workers, domestic workers, and restaurant workers who were left out at a $0 wage and made to live on a wage that today, 81 years later, is $2.13 an hour. So we already had millions of mostly women, disproportionately women of color, living on a $2 wage, and then they were laid off en masse. And so I've been saying these workers live tip to mouth. That means that they had $2 wage and tips on Friday the 13th, which was D-Day in a lot of places. And the very next Mm -hmm. day, they had nothing to feed their kids 
the vast majority of these workers cannot access unemployment insurance either because of immigration status or more frequently because they didn't work long enough in the restaurant or didn't work enough hours. So many single mothers out there working three restaurant jobs, 20 hours each, don't qualify for unemployment insurance for any of them, even though they're working 60 or more hours a week. Um, those that do qualify are getting unemployment insurance measured on a sub-minimum wage of $2 an hour plus tips and mm -hmm. thus are mm -hmm. not able to live. And so we are definitely now seeing uh, Great Depression era levels of starvation and hunger with literally millions of workers across America without any means to feed their children uh, based on a system that uh, never should have existed in the first place. So um, when, we, when we talk about some of the fixes, I'm certainly going to want to know where was the conversation about this in the big omnibus bill and what further conversations are ongoing to address this issue. Um, but now we're getting snapshots of what's happening. So let me ask you, Millie, in, in a sense, we're, we're talking about flip sides of the same coin. Uh, so restaurant workers who um, now cannot survive because of the closures of restaurants. That's one part of the food delivery system. The other side of the food delivery uh, system is agricultural workers. So I want you to help uh, paint a picture of how agricultural workers are experiencing this moment. I, I understand that they're working, but what are the conditions under which they are working? How does shelter in place and the six feet rule play out for them. Yes, uh, Kim, first of all, I just want to thank you for, for inviting me to be part of, of this uh, presentation with all these marvelous women that are also uh, here to share. Um, I do want to share that Alianza, uh, which is the National Pharmacal Women's Organization, is the first of its kind. It's 15 different organizations, groups, that joined because we, we had seen so many different issues that were happening throughout uh, the United States where uh, farmers have been exploited throughout the years. And uh, at this point in time, uh, we're in 11 different states and we're representing more than 700,000 farmers women. And uh, what we know is that these women and men don't have the choice of staying home during this time of crisis. Uh, as they work there, there's no social distancing there. Um, companies are more are more concerned of trying to get uh, their vegetables, fruits, their milk as soon as possible because they might be afraid that uh, even they're going to have to close shop. We're asking them to make sure that they're washing their hands, covering with masks. They're not given any of that. There's no water for them to wash their hands. The companies are not putting any measure so that the workers don't get exposed. Uh, in terms of unemployment, we have more than 2 million farm workers in general. 65% are undocumented. You know, they're mm -hmm. afraid of, okay, if I, if I miss work because I get sick, um, it's, it's either missing work or not, you know, and uh, getting paid very, very little. Uh, $15,000 a year is very, very little. And so they well, live- For a family. Yeah. And so you've mentioned both that they're low wage workers, many of them are undocumented, but you also, you know, point out that many of the workers are women and now with kids at home, there's yet another challenge that some uh, of the agricultural workers are facing. Talk just a little bit about how that's 
creating stress, both economic stress and concerns about their children, that this coercive um, employment regime is basically exacerbating for some of those workers. Yes, uh, there's, there's so much. First of all, many women there are, are single moms. And what they're trying to do is pitch in helping each other. Uh, one of them goes to work while the other one takes care of their, their kids. And then the other day, the other goes to work. So they're risking the, uh, being fired because they're not there on a daily basis. They're thinking either risking exposure or risking homelessness. Workers are asked to work eight to 10 hours a day. There's no overtime. Right now, uh, the companies are asking workers to work 12 to 14 hours a, a day. And by wow. the time they get home, they try to go to the store and stores are empty. Their shelves are empty. The essentials that are needed. And then they don't have health insurance. If they get sick, um, uh, none of this is being dealt with uh, in Congress. They're, they're just saying, okay, it's, a ten it's essential. It's an essential uh, workplace. Uh, you need to make sure that uh, laborers are there, but they don't. They don't care mm -hmm. if workers are going to be laid off. Uh, if there's health insurance, they're uh, they're gonna, they're getting paid enough. All this is is terrible. So I mean, it, it truly is a quintessential picture of being essential and being expendable at the same time. And in particular, the the challenges that many of the uh, single moms are facing as well. Well, uh, Lillian Saru has given us a sense of what's happening to workers involved in the agricultural and food industries, and we'll talk more in a bit about what is and what isn't happening to alleviate these conditions. But while workers have been busy trying to keep themselves and their families alive, and employers and governments are dragging their feet in providing the protections for them to do so, like paid sick leave and, and other relief, other things seem to be happening fairly quickly. So I'm going to turn now to Naomi Klein, author of The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, and among other profoundly illuminating books, just to give us the wish list of accomplishments that seem to be within the reach of corporate interests at this moment. So Naomi, uh, give us more or less a snapshot of all the things that are happening under the hood or under the rock of coronavirus, who's getting served in this moment? Whose interests are being advanced? Sure. Um, you talked about the wish list. This is something that we see again and again during times of profound crisis or shock. That's what I mean by the shock doctrine. Um, it's a term that I started using after um, Hurricane Katrina because we mm -hmm. saw an absolutely bloody-minded focus on the part of corporations and, and, and right-wing lawmakers um, who were in constant communication strategizing about how to use the crisis to advance a, a pre-existing wish list. You've got the fossil fuel companies that have managed to convince the EPA to suspend enforcement of all environmental standards, um, you know, they wanted that before Corona. They're using this pandemic to roll back the protections that, you know, inadequate as they are, protect communities from further air pollution. I think Silicon Valley has their wish list. I think there is a pre-existing uh, uh, desire from a lot of very powerful companies to have pretty mm -hmm. much all of our social, social interactions mediated by for-profit tech companies. 
the nature of social distancing <laughs> means that we're becoming ever more reliant on the big tech intermediaries. So by, by that frame, and, and thank you so much for, for your work and for um, making this framing so accessible for people, I think that the, the analogy now that, that you helped us think about, like uh, we know that the virus is doing its work uh, most viciously in the body where there are pre-existing conditions. If we think about what uh, disaster capitalism is about is doing its work where there are pre-existing agendas and these pre-existing agendas are using this opportunity to actually come into four. So we have both the pre-existing conditions of inequality and then we have the pre-existing preparation to actually double down on those inequalities and, and build them out even further. I guess I'm wondering whether there are dimensions in this moment, Naomi, that are new in their ability to entrench. And I'm thinking of what you've just mentioned, surveillance capitalism. Mm -hmm. So what, what's a piece of that surveillance capitalism? How do we see it playing out right now? Well, we're doing it right now. <laughs> I mean, we're all as <laughs> a private company, um, which, which does terrible security. I mean, we're all, do, you know, we're having our, our, our conversations on YouTube. We're satisfying our need, our, our profoundly human need for connection on Twitter and on Instagram and on all of these platforms whose business model is to give us access to these very powerful tools, either for free or for pretty cheap. And the the, the quid pro quo is we pretty much give up our privacy rights. We are data mined. The information that is aggregated about, about us is sold to third parties, sometimes advertisers, sometimes political players. The, the commodity is our attention, right? Um, if the commodity is our attention, then what you want is maximum engagement. So if you wonder why mm -hmm. when you log on to Twitter, you end up in a bad mood so very, very quickly, it's probably because it, it, you're on an algorithm that is designed to maximize engagement. And mm -hmm. the emotion that, is, that most reliably fuels in, uh, prolonged engagement is not joy, <laughs> but rather frustration yes. and anger. Um, so we are feeding, you know, a, an attention economy, and I, you know, and I think there's there's a kind of manicness, and I'm so struck listening to Millie's description of farm workers. I mean, this crisis is playing out so unequally, right? You you have workers who are working harder than they have ever worked. Many of these workers are in the so-called gig economy, so they don't actually have employers or rather they have employers in denial. So one of the wish lists for the restaurant industry where Saru you know, represents so many workers is you know, they wanna move the whole workforce to the gig workforce to, to basically order their workforce the way we order food, right? So there are all kinds of, of pre-existing agendas. Obviously the worst case scenario is just the, the way in which we're superpowering some of the worst actors in our economy like Jeff Bezos, who's making an absolute killing from this, right? Um, mm -hmm. But obviously that's not the whole story because another part of that yeah. story is that these workers who have been um, denigrated as gig workers, as, um, as, as low skilled, are acutely aware of how essential their labor is now and, and there is yeah, real yeah. power that comes from that. And, and as you said, times of great crises are opportunities. How it gets used uh, may be a product of how we're mobilized, what we have the capacity to do. And that all 
in turn is grounded on what we can now see, particularly what we see in terms of uh, the mutuality behind and across um, many of, of these different constituencies. I want to turn now to Dara Baldwin. Among the, the various constituencies that are flying you know, sort of under the radar are, of course, people with disabilities. You have talked about treatment rationing as an example of what's not working in our public health system. So first, give us a sense of what, what, what is the conversation that treatment rationing is indicating? And, and then we want to get a sense of how it's tied to uh, our public health model. Sure. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Peace and blessings to everyone out there. Thank you, Kimberly. So yes, uh, treatment rationing is exactly what it sounds like. It's rationing treatment. Um, it is racist. It is ableist. It is based on a system that is racist and ableist, a public health model. Um, and what it is, is saying who shall live and who shall not, or who shall we actually take care of, meaning clinicians, who they will take care of and who they won't, in times of crisis, um, in times like this. Uh, you may have read many stories in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times has been covering this, NPR, Joe Shapiro, who is a longtime disability um, reporter, has been covering this. Um, and we've been, you know, concerned about these things for many years for disabled folks. It's based also on capitalism. Naomi's talking about economic capitalism. Let's talk about the social definition of capitalism, which is survival of the fittest, right? And at this time is when it comes in. This is what we're talking about. Who defines? who the fittest is, right? A uh, structural racist system decided that. And if you don't have the resources, right, or you are not thought of to be a part of the community or worthy of living, um, this is what was ha is happening. So we've seen it in six states so far, Alabama, Florida, Kansas, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Washington State, where the State Department of Health and Human Services are setting up policies and programs to tell hospitals to pick and choose and say who's worthy of being saved. And that- What are some examples, Dara? Sure, yeah. uh, Washington State was kind of the first to do this because this is where people were dying first. But to say that they're looking at your age and your health and if you have underlying morbidities. And then we also have people um, with disabilities who live their everyday life on ventilators. And they are terrified um, because they're looked at as low, like they will not be able to survive. So let's not try but to- Is it possible they might take their ventilators away right. from them? And I was gonna say, right, and let's take their ventilators because we're running short and we need a ventilator. And this person really, you know, is, is not worth living. They're not, they're, you know, they're not, considered to be valued in this community. That is why we have the ADA. That is, the ADA is only, well, it'll be 30 years old, but 30 years is when we decided in this country that people with disabilities actually had a civil and human right. And so, mm -hmm. right, that says a lot. And that is still, it is still thought of in a clinical world as they don't have a right and that they are a burden to the system and we need to get rid of that burden so I can save this 27-year-old healthy white male. So does the ADA kick in? Um, is there a sense that these directives violate the rights, the enforceable rights of people who are covered by it? 
Yes, correct. The ADA, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as Rehab Act, Section 504. There are laws as well as HIPAA. And the Federal Department of Health and Human Services has issued a bulletin telling states to stop doing this and to enforce the civil and human rights of disabled folks and elderly, mostly disabled. Um, and yes, mm -hmm. both of those laws cover that. And in each of those states that I mentioned, disability rights groups have um, put in complaints and um, put in orders to say stop doing this. Um, most of the disability rights centers, which are the protection and advocacy centers, the civil rights lawyers are fighting us and saying stop doing this. Um, this is also being mm. done across the world. Like it's not only in the United States, the, the United Kingdom, The Guardian did a really good report on this. Um, it's happening in other countries. Italy, the doctors had to say, well, we're gonna pick and choose who's gonna live. Spain is doing this. So this is something that is, you know, an ableist, racist system going around the world. Okay. Um, it, you know, it strikes me that, that one of the parallels between all of these is that we're allowing um, essential services, essential rights to be distributed on a market-based model. And, uh, you know, the amplification of the vulnerability because so many of the uh, multiply marginalized people are on you know, the underside of all of these so-called markets. So it's not surprising which are the bodies most likely to suffer in this sort of ranking system. But it seems as though one of the challenges, I'm sure people will say, well, but isn't that just, you know, the reality? What else uh, can we do? This is a moment of significant stress on a system and this is just what happens uh, when the system gets stressed. But is that a product of just the way things are and have to be? Or is that a product of how we have been um, led to think uh, the limitations of possibilities operate? So uh, for that, I, I wanted to talk to Janine Jackson, who uh, can help us think about how some of these issues are being framed by the mainstream media. So Janine, what are you seeing in the mainstream coverage of this uh, virus that brings to fore some of the pre-existing problems that I know you've talked about and others have talked about um, and its impact on rationalizing much of what we've heard all of the other guests talking about so far. Yeah, we're talking about who tells us that these choices are necessary, right? I, the moment is mm -hmm. really showing us the conflict between journalism as a public good, as a public service, and our historical and reversible choice to allow media to be run as a profit-driven business, you know, where the owners are corporations, where the sponsors who fuel it are corporations, and where on the boards of the media outlets, you have folks from insurance companies and fossil fuel companies and banks and military contractors. So while corporate media will allow critical voices they will not permit a sustained substantive conversation about how and why we need to change the socioeconomic system, the status quo that sustains them. Their main credo is by and large, the system works. So how that's showing up now is really, first of all, in the overall constraint of our conversation about, about what we can do, about possibilities, moving forward. 
universal health care, nope, nope, still too, still radical, still too crazy, giving money directly to corporations as the obvious first thing with the implication that somehow that will trickle down to everyone else, absolutely, that goes in unquestioningly. And then there's the frame of who matters that we're talking about. Media's top-down bias means that news is what powerful people say and do. You have to hear everything Trump says. It all has to be broadcast, even if it's literally toxic. You can bring mm -hmm. folks on to challenge him, but he still gets to set the terms of debate. And it means mm -hmm. headlines like we saw in the New York Times, Trump suggests lack of testing is no longer a problem. Governors disagree. Well, I guess we all, I'll choose who I want to believe there. You know, um, that's mm -hmm. not objectivity. It's a choice. Mm -hmm. In the same way mm -hmm. that it's a choice mm -hmm. to freeze mortgage payments but not freeze rents, you know, it's a choice. We're hearing more about grocery workers and food deliverers and trash collectors. We're hearing about them as selfless. Barack Obama had a tweet in which he called these frontline workers selfless as though they were endangering their health and safety out of altruism rather than that they need to make rent, you know? Um, and that mm -hmm. Obama tweet was over a Wall Street Journal article that called these precarious workers unexpected heroes of the pandemic. So mm -hmm. unexpected by whom, you know? Whose perspective is that coming from? Media mm -hmm. are spotlighting structurally abused workers right now, and it's meant to warm our heart, but it's kind of like the boss who won't give you a living wage, but will give you a title. You know, um, you know, you're a special executive assistant of taking this crap, you know, is basically mm -hmm. what's going on. And then this is all within a real curse word of a frame, lives versus livelihoods. This is where media say, yes, it's important. Human lives are important, but. And as soon as you hear that, but, you know, you're in an inhumane conversation, you know, like, but human mm -hmm. lives need to be pitted against the economy, which is this very vague phrase that is used constantly and almost never unpacked. Because what it means mm -hmm. is the survival of a particular socioeconomic system, the same one that's endangering and undervaluing and yes, killing people right now. So there is a lot of great and necessary and important journalism that's revealing some of these inequities that we're talking about, that journalism is out there, but it's mm -hmm. in this context of corporate media's big lies. We can't afford to take care of everyone. We just can't afford it. Mm -hmm. Also, it's mm -hmm. worker against worker. So if you order a pizza mm -hmm. right now, well, it's you that's exploiting that worker, right? People with alternative visions, with alternative ideas, are marginal at best and dangerous at worst. And I would say that the mm -hmm. mm -hmm. attempt to constrain our belief in one another and our understanding of what our possibilities are. And I say attempt mm -hmm. because, of course, ultimately it's not up to them, it's up to us. And, you know, this is such a important moment for us to think um, critically uh, about the media, partly because I think the last several years in which the media have been under attack by the president has 
you know, created a circle the wagons kind of, of response with the idea that, you know, the enemy of my enemy uh, is my friend. So some of the, the critical, you know, reading and work that, that might otherwise be done, you know, sort of forcing more of the sort of corporate interests to, to smoke them out may have been suppressed in, in part because of the, the constant attack. And now we're moving into a period where, you know, just the president acknowledging the reality that we're seeing after six weeks of denying it and likely contributing to that reality, just him saying that is enough for people in, you know, the media in many places to declare he's being presidential. Um, so in terms of trying to parse this, to, to both be aware of the work that Trump's attack on the mainstream media has helped him, you know, sort of perpetrate, and at the same time being critical of what the media don't cover, what they don't do, and how they do function. As a media critic yourself, how should we try to parse this? Well, the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend is very critical here. You know, just because Trump is critical of news media doesn't mean that you have to defend them. We've seen a number of corporate media outlets sort of rebranding themselves as resistance in this case. But I think we have to hold them to a standard of whether they actually are resisting. It's not enough to put a motto on your masthead that says democracy and dies in darkness. You still have to genuinely engage these problems that, you know, Trump, as we would all agree, is not the only representative of. We're talking about pre-existing problems and inequalities, you know. So one of the main things that we do is look at sources. It's just who gets to speak. You know, corporate media mm -hmm. seem to have kind of a you know, a designated opinion shaper role where even people who've lied, who've gotten things wrong, who've misled people, they don't lose their spot in media. You know, we, they still no. shape our <laughs> ideas. They still get to be in the conversation. And those of, of us or of folks who were critical of, say, the Iraq war or something are still marginal are still scrabbling at the outside. You know, we get an op-ed mm -hmm. in, we get something in here and there, but it doesn't get to shape the conversation. And it really does mm -hmm. come back mm -hmm. to the ownership. This is their interest. What folks are seeing is this isn't a time for little changes. This isn't about like, you know, $1,200 one time isn't enough. It should be $1,600. That's not the kind of scale of solution that we're talking about. And so we have to mm -hmm. recognize how invested corporate media are in the status quo to realize why these absolutely critical conversations, that's not the place to, to have them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, while, while we're on the question of what is allowed uh, to happen and how this moment might be mobilized differently, Mimi, I want to come back to you because you had mentioned earlier that uh, agricultural workers are not protected by uh, some of the basic protections that other workers were able to win. Uh, and it reminds us there are moments in which we've had crises in the past and there have been interventions, but those interventions actually reproduce some of the same exclusion, some of the same marginalizations that preexisted the crises. So this is part of 
you know, what happened uh, with the New Deal. So why is it and how did it come to be that agricultural workers and, and others were excluded from some of the basic protections that many Americans think just go with being a, a worker? Very interesting, and thank you for allowing me to speak on, on that. The Fair Labor Standards Act, as I was mentioning earlier, was the act that was uh, placed in, in 1938. I'll just think about who were the Congress people during that time. Uh, many connected to people that had plantations, people that had, used to have slaves, and how dare they would allow agricultural workers, uh, which means black people, get the same kind of rights than any other workers? How dare uh, people doing domestic work or restaurant workers? I mean, they were not going to allow that. Another big issue is uh, because we're seen as an invisible part of uh, society, 65% of our farm worker communities are undocumented. So we're seen as, okay, not only quote-unquote illegals, people that disobeyed the law, et cetera, but they're, they're not thinking. Right now, they see us as essentials. And I'm glad that at this point in time, they're not going to do raids in the, in the workplace. How dare they, they would do that right now? You won't have food in your table. Uh, people have to plant. They have to work the, the plant and make sure there's going to be food, vegetables. There's going to be milk. Uh, there's going to be uh, meat everything in your table. If, if, if these kind of workers stop, then what's going to happen? People are not going to have food. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at the same time that we're only seen as commodities, uh, the women would be and their families would be very much afraid to go. Uh, they get sick to go to the doctor. Why? Because yes, on the streets, on the, on the roads, ICE is still trying to detain people. That has not stopped. So they, they don't want to put themselves mm -hmm. as, as higher risk. And let me tell you, workers go an hour or an hour and a half before the time they, they need to be at work to get there. Why? Because they're afraid that ICE is going to stop them uh, while they're going to work. And this is a, a prime example about how oppressive uh, dynamics that are permitted to continue in one arena also have reverberations elsewhere. So a lot of the uh, maps are being reserved for ice workers That's rather right. than workers who are actually putting food on our table, workers who are taking care of us in the hospitals. Sorry, I, I want to uh, pivot a bit and build off of Millie's conversation about what um, was included and what was not included in uh, the last great moment in, in which huge public policy uh, shifted in response to a crisis. What are the contemporary uh, dimensions of that that you all are fighting for? Millions of dollars are now going to be spent. Um, do those dollars get spent in a way that alleviates some of the uh, issues that we all have been talking about, or is this a lot more of the same? Yeah, um, I, I actually think we, we have this profound, profound moment of opportunity right now. You know, uh, it's true. We have been fighting <laughs> against um, the things that were left off the table in the New Deal. And we are fighting against those who, as Naomi said, are using the moment to basically promulgate the status quo and even make it much worse, um, who are using the moment to get billions of dollars in 
bailouts, but there is this incredible moment of opportunity. So Naomi said these moments are all about the ideas left on the table. And yes, that could be corporations, you know, that, you know, are at the table and they have the ideas and they'll drive this moment getting billions of dollars, or it could be us, or it could be us putting our ideas forward and our new, new deal and our better new deal and our, um, and our stake in the ground that says that we will never go back. If this moment doesn't tell us anything, it tells us that we, will, we can never, we will never go back to where we were before coronavirus because this moment shows where we were before coronavirus never worked in the first place. So I just want to give two very brief examples. We launched a relief fund because our, we grew our work beyond restaurant workers to include all tipped and service workers, the Uber, Lyft, and Instacart DoorDash workers that Naomi talked about, the uh, nail salon and car wash and airport workers, all of whom get a sub-minimum wage. And uh, we launched the fund on Monday, March 16th. 100,000 workers have signed up for relief to our fund. And we have raised mm. a couple million to hand out in cash payments to them. It's nowhere near enough. And we're scratching the surface of the need. But what is really interesting is that we've amassed about 500 volunteers that are calling down this list of 100,000, each worker screening for highest need, organizing them into one fair wage, and registering them to vote. And they are eager and anxious and wanting to talk to us. They are unemployed and feeling like this is a moment where they want to see change. And so for the first time in my life as an organizer, 20 years, I can get for the first time in my life, 50,000 workers in front of a legislator in a teletown hall where we get to raise and say, we, we needed one fair wage all along. We needed a full livable minimum wage with tips on top all along. And yes, we need unemployment insurance now. And yes, we need those checks from the government. And yes, it needs to be universal. But ultimately, we need to be paid. We need to be paid by our own employers. We need to be paid a livable wage. And so that's an incredible opportunity that didn't exist before, the opportunity to organize. And on the employer side, on the employer side, if we're talking about any kind of rent relief, tax relief, incentives, loans, cash given to businesses, there should be strings attached. The strings should say, if you get this from the government, you have to commit to paying $15 and one fair wage, a full minimum wage, a livable uh, with tips on top next year. There are ways in which we can say in opposition to the companies are saying just bail us out with no strings attached we can put our collective foot in the you know stake in the ground and say absolutely not we're never going back any relief any change any policy right now doesn't just have to be about immediate relief it has to be immediate relief that helps change the future of our economy and our society mm -hmm. forever thank you thank you sir um so naomi you talked about the wish list of things that uh, corporate America is getting, but uh, we also know that despots all over the world are also um, having their day. So what is it about this moment that we can, you know, sort of see in, in terms of the attack on democracy? Yeah, you know, th this strategy of using the cover of crisis, creating a state of exception out of a state of emergency is 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 a a tried and tested uh, uh, tactic uh, for despots the world over, especially when the crisis reveals their own failures. Right? 
if we look at Benjamin Netanyahu, Jair Bolsonaro, Viktor Orban, all of these strongman figures who already have strong authoritarian um, bents, though are confined by notional rules around democracy to greater and lesser degrees, all of them have used this crisis, I'd add Modi as well, as various power grabs. Orban and Netanyahu are now uh, ruling by decree. They've granted themselves absolute power indefinitely under cover of crisis. Uh, like for Netanyahu, he was facing investigation for corruption, a trial, and he has used the, the pandemic to say, well, his trial can't go ahead. And it's moments yeah. when we are really in uncharted territories that these mm -hmm. sort of strong men figures can seize power. I talked about Netanyahu. He's pushed through mass surveillance of the population, you know, policies that were road tested on Palestinians now on everybody in Israel. We've seen this with Modi. We're seeing uh, kind of worse practices already being swapped between these strongman figures, the Modi's, the Duterte's, the Trump's, the Bolsonaro's. So it, we really do need, I think, to have a global conversation here about what we're seeing in different countries and how we can resist. You know, I think the worse this goes for Trump, the more dangerous Trump becomes. You know, Trump didn't create the pandemic, but, the, the, but what has made it so lethal is the greed is the racism, is the atrocities of for-profit healthcare on top of legacies of austerity, right? And this is true in countries with universal public health care like Italy and, and, and the United Kingdom with the NHS. I mean, these are public health care systems that have been under relentless cutbacks for decades. And that is why they were not prepared in any way, shape, or form by this, for this crisis. You know, Cuomo just today passed a budget in, in New York State with cuts to health care. If we don't fight for a tr truly just bailouts for people and not for corporations, if we don't make mm -hmm. sure that states and cities get the money that they need, then the bill for these huge bailouts for corporations is going to be paid in the form of school closures, hospital closures, further attacks on the public sphere that then make us so much more vulnerable um, to crisis. Mm -hmm. so, uh, we're in a war here about how we are going to define this crisis and whose ideas are going to be lying around. Um, normal mm -hmm. is over. We are either going to be blasted backwards or there is going to be some kind of a leap forward. And I think this fantasy of normalcy, of returning to normal pre-Trump, right, um, is sort of mm -hmm. the, the ghost that haunted this whole electoral cycle and that Biden mm -hmm. represents, you know, the dream that mm -hmm. can't we just return to normal. All of that mm -hmm. has fallen apart, right? We've entered recession. We may well be facing depression. And the question is, what values are going to govern our response to this? And, and, I, and I think just, just as we move to what should people be looking out for, um, and thank you for, for leading us to that, um, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that our existing occupant in the White House can be framed as presidential just because he's basically, you know, running press conferences, you know, is a suggestion about how that sort of appearance of authority without substantive content sort of fits the description. You know, you fit the description of a leader. doesn't matter, you know, uh, that you let us off the cliff. 
that's more or less a, a signal to me that the exceptionalism that many Americans embrace to think that, okay, these things will never go south in that way um, is false. We, we see it uh, happening now. We see hundreds of thousands of people potentially dying. We see all sorts of, of power grabs unfolding. And, you know, there isn't a real strong sense that the opposition is really as oppositional as we need it to be. So um, in our last seven minutes, and, and time has really flown, I want to ask you all, each of you uh, put out some idea or some set of uh, interventions that you are uh, hoping to generate support for, and I, I'd like this to, to be the moment that you share what it is in a minute um, that you want people to, to know about. Um, so I'm going to start with Dara. So uh, I would say that, yes, we do. This is our opportunity. I'm with my sisters. Many of us have been saying this. Forget the chessboard, take the pieces off, turn it over, and start this over again. <laughs> And this is our time to do that. Um, and there are many campaigns. There will be a surplus number four. So please get ready for that. Conversations have already started. I'm here in D.C. And on the conversations and calls with staffers have already started about their infrastructure will be in there. Um, so they need to hear our voices. I don't, I don't believe in any, any of these parties. I don't think you can change systems that were created by white racist people. We need our own parties. So let's think about those things. My first campaign was making Martin Luther King's birthday holiday. And they said that would never happen. And you see, we have a monument on the mall um, that happened. They said Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. would die in prison and that did not happen. So we have to keep hope and we have to organize and we have to tell these people we are in charge and it is time for us to stand up and say, no more will you do this to us and not be afraid of that. And as Jason Wu keeps saying on the chat form, we have to all come together like Audre Lorde said. And thank you, Saru, Naomi, and everybody on here who does that. And we have to keep moving forward and make sure you know there are that a change is coming and that we all have to do this together. All right. Thank you, Dara. Thank you so much. Uh, Janine. I want to say um, be wary of media trying to talk you out of your outrage, um, <laughs> saying that, yeah, Congress people, sure, they knew something. They traded stocks and they lied to the public. But, you know, it'd be really difficult to, you know, hold them to account for that. No. What you think is right, your outrage is correct. Look out for who's going to get to define success in this moment. Are they gonna mm -hmm. define it as the status quo ante? Cause that's not mm -hmm. our definition. Look out for language. The vaccine, searching for a vaccine is now being presented as an international contest. So what does that shut down in our thinking if we read it that way? We need to be looking around the world in solidarity. We need to be seeing ourselves as part of the world. Recognize that objectivity is bullshit. Journalists have a responsibility to do more than narrate the nightmare. You are not wrong to demand a pro-humanity bias. And then finally, talk around mainstream media, supporting alternative and independent media, talk around mainstream media to share the stories of real resistance and real alternatives. When I read about GE workers striking because they're, gonna de they're demanding that their factory not make jet engines, but instead be turning to ventilators, that 
doesn't only cheer me, it also materially helps me understand whether I could do that where I am, you know, whether I'm mm -hmm. an outlier or whether I actually have support. We actually do have one another, but we have to be able to stay in community and we have to recognize that although we may rely on news media for information, we can't rely on corporate news media for the conversation that we need to have to genuinely move us forward in a way that doesn't move us backward. Thank you, Janine, thank you. Uh, Neely. Thank you, thank you. Um, what we're asking is to contact Congress, remind them, you know, if we're essential, then, you know, provide the support that we need. That's what we're asking for. And then uh, aside from that, we're asking for donations. Uh, uh, look at our website, AlianzaNacionalDeCampesinas.org. You're going to find out what, what, the, what the organizations are doing. Please donate to the organizations. Why? Because they don't have money. We're doing all this because it's needed. And most of these people don't, I mean, they're, they, they have a lot of volunteers, but how can they, how can they survive if, if they don't have uh, resources? So they need the support. There's a lot of work that's being done, and, uh, but uh, we need your help. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Saru. Yeah, um, thank you all so much for this conversation. I just would love to ask people to consider um, also supporting our fund. It's at www.ofwemergencyfund.org to support 14 or 15 million service workers, restaurant, nail salon, car wash, airport, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash that are laid off or on the verge of being laid off any day now. Supporting that fund will allow us to not just get them cash, but uh, will actually allow us to engage them in the organizing and in the fight. Um, and on that same website, you can sign up to volunteer and help us call these hundreds of thousands of workers to get them into the fight. Um, but I also want to say that there is a way in which you can support every time you think about ordering out right now, which is that we've got a list of the restaurants that are doing the right thing, 800 of them that have been providing livable wages and working conditions. It's a free app you can get on your app store called the ROC National Diners Guide. You can download it and see which restaurants are doing the right thing and order your meals from there. It does seem like that moment where things that before uh, seemed totally um, impossible now seem totally possible. You know, a few weeks ago, a company that we had fought for, for years, decades really, Darden, which is Olive Garden and Bread Lobster parent company, they had actually poured money into fighting us on minimum wage and paid sick leave, suddenly announced overnight they were providing all of their workers with paid sick leave. And so clearly the impossible, things that these companies have said are impossible for so long are suddenly possible, but it will take us actually naming that and saying the impossible is possible right now. It has to be, and we're, we're never, ever going back. Thank you, Sarah. And Naomi. Wow, I'm just so blown away by these brilliant, brilliant people. Um, we are in a better position as social movements than we were in 2008, the last time the global financial system collapsed, because I think that that was a moment where we understood that we were getting screwed, we understood that we were getting fleeced, we said no, we occupied squares, we did all those things, but what we didn't do enough was very clearly put forward visionary alternatives that meet people's real needs. 
And I think that in the intervening years, there has been a lot of proactive work done by the Movement for Black Lives, the Green New Deal, um, many examples of bringing movements together to think about the world we actually want instead of this broken world. And so now is mm -hmm. this moment where we have to believe in those visions with, with the same confidence as the people we are up against who in bloody-minded fashion are going to be pushing the ideas that don't only represent death for individual humans, but also represent death for our collective planet. We have an opening here. Um, it comes at a tremendous cost. These are going to be brutal, brutal weeks and months. We are gonna lose people. We have already started losing people. And those losses cannot be in vain. We have to make this crisis mean something. It has to be a moment of transformation. We mm -hmm. cannot look to the Cuomos, obviously not the Trumps. We see who our leaders are. Our leaders are the people who are saving our lives right now. We have tremendous leadership here in this conversation. In National Nurses United, Bonnie Castillo, the head of the, the, of, of the nurses union, um, who are fighting for Medicare for all before this happened because they didn't want to be put in the position of having to choose who would live and who would die, which is what happens under a for-profit healthcare system with or without a pandemic, right? So we mm -hmm. already mm -hmm. have those leaders. Um, they are overwhelmingly women, and we, and we need to follow them and not look for these patriarchal uh, strongman figures who give that, that temporary sense of safety, and we have to help our friends and our family members steer them away from those false prophets in those moments. And, and we need to build an economy that values the people who we value most in this moment, that is built on caring for one another and caring for the earth. I believe we can do that. It's gonna be the fight of our lives, mm -hmm. but you know, what else can we do? So, yeah. Well, Naomi, you um, and the panelists uh, are the illustration of precisely what you've all said. We, we have strong leadership, we have uh, innovative ideas, we have courage and we have the commitment. All of you have brought that to us in so many ways. I hope everyone across the country and around the world who's been listening to this can join me in a virtual applause for Dara, Janine, Saru, Naomi, and Millie. We're so appreciative that you were willing to spend this time with us. So thank you so much, all of you. We invite you to join us over Zoom for our next episode in our series, Wednesday at 8 p.m. More information available at our website. Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find Intersectionality Matters on social media at aapf.org and everywhere podcasts are available. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, Janine Irving, and Andrew Sun. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.